So one of the things when you did Daring Fireball that I always appreciated was actually Markdown and not just Markdown because you wrote a Markdown. You can go to Daring Fireball, your post.txt and see the Markdown. But it always seemed very meaningful to me that you had made something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I was just thinking about that today. And it's 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 like such a weird thing because I don't I don't mention it much on Daring Fireball, but I've gotten a, a recent rash of holy crap, you invented Markdown? I had no idea type responses. And I'm like, of course I did. I just, <laughs> it was very important. So wait, what was the timeline there? Did you did, did you start during Fireball before Markdown or Markdown yes. before during Fireball? No, no, I started during Fireball first. And for the first calendar year or so, I might be slightly getting this off, but from like August 2002 to sometime around that period in 2003, Every single post I wrote to Daring Fireball, I wrote in HTML. And so it was snippets of HTML. And what I had done is I had built up a series of uh, scripts, like pre-flight scripts to... um, uh, One other thing about that era, though, is I didn't have my link list entries. I only had, quote unquote, full articles. Oh, that's right. That's right. Although I did write more of them per week. I, you know, uh, you could look at like my archive for 2002 and you could see i probably had about three to four posts a week um so it was it having a little bit more manual pre-flighting for each post wasn't that arduous but what i did is uh, first things i did was uh for example leaving off the p tags around paragraphs so you don't have to i'm not going to give everybody a lesson on html here but everybody could recognize you put angle bracket p and the angle bracket and then you have yep. a paragraph well it, i would just put double returns write my article proofread it and then uh, when i was ready to go do like a had like a saved find and replace to add p tags around everything that was a paragraph and slowly but surely i added i had like three or four of these things like to make you know html tags that were hard to type or ugly to look at uh, replace them with some kind of shortcut. And then about sometime in late 2003, I started working on what was Markdown. Uh, and then it came in, I think it was beta sometime early in the year in 2004 when I pu- publicized it. Well, I mean, I've used Markdown from day one. It's essential. It is so, like, it's, it's queer. It's one of those things where you made it for your needs. And given that my needs are the exact same as your needs, <laughs> I'm, I'm a very satisfied, very satisfied consumer. Unlike, uh, some other sort of, uh, Markdown adherents that want to use it for different needs and then get grumpy at you. Uh, we are very much, uh, two peas in a pot as far as how Markdown should be used. Yeah. One of the things I did and, uh, you know, I, 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 when I first got it and I was like, I think I've got something here. I mean, I've told this story to other people before, but there was a, a the late, great Dean Allen had a thing he invented called textile, which is the same basic idea as Markdown, where it's some kind of text shortcut you would type and you could type posts in. And then when you publish it, it would turn it into HTML. And a few of the things were similar to Markdown, like I think like putting asterisk, asterisks around the word, turned it into bold. And, you know, I chose italics for that and you know, a couple of things like that, but it was also a little bit more Mark Uppy. It was a little bit more like T-Roff and NROF, the, the Unix things that date back to the seventies, uh, where you tag things at the very beginning of the line as to what type they were. Like, I think you typed like dot H one to make an H one at the beginning of a line and became a header. Um, and textile took off. It was a little bit easier, definitely easier to on the eyes than HTML, but it was still kind of ugly to look at. And I knew Dean and, um, guy named Brad Choate worked at Six Apart, the company that made movable type. And Brad turned Dean's textile into a good plugin for movable type. 
And then they, Dean was working on textile too. And then the three of us, I started emailing him ideas and <laughs> I was like, I think yeah, I had like this list of ideas for textile too. And Dean was like, these are fantastic ideas. These are great, but that's not textile. You should just like do your own thing. And I was like, yeah, you're right. maybe I should just do my own thing. And so like the whole, like I should do my own thing. Credit goes to Dean Allen. Um, uh, what, what, what I appreciate about it is beyond just the fact that I like Markdown is I, I feel like particularly, you know, when I first was reading you back in the day and just knowing that you had made this really valuable tool that for yourself and that was broadly used, it g- gave more vitality to what you wrote in some respect. I, I, it, was, it was something I could never quite wrap my mind around. I, I, was just, I was just always happy to know that you had made Markdown as I was reading Daring Fireball, even if you were writing posts that had nothing to do with Daring Fireball. And it's something that understood why I enjoyed that is when I started Shotechery and the fact that not just Shotechery, the blog part, but once Shotechery became a business, because I feel like once Shotechery was a business and it was this new model of making it up in volume, it like I, it just made me feel better about everything I was writing. I'm going to sit here and tell Tim Cook what to do. And have I been CEO of Apple? No, I haven't. But I've built this something, you know, this is, it's not remotely relevant to Apple, but I, I've done something beyond just sort of like spouting off, if that, if that makes sense. And I think mm. that sort of crystallized why I enjoyed knowing that you made Markdown. Does, mm. does, does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, you know, it, it definitely was written by a writer for writers. I mean, and even though I was the fellow who also had to implement the first version, it is devilishly hard to parse as many people who've complained about it have. Uh, some of the complaints over yep. the years have been suggestions to make it easier to for software to parse uh, at the detriment of the writability of it. You know, in yeah, a writability, me, that's the way to put it. Writability and readability, both. But, you know, it, you know, and a lot, a lot of ways it's, it's, you know, it, it seems so simple, but part of it is that you, if you want to, if you don't really understand it, if you don't know what the hell you're doing and you just randomly put a bunch of asterisks all over the place, you're going to get bad output. It's, it's, you know, like illegal, invalid HTML. It's sort of like any kind of professional tool. Like, you know, if you use a hammer, you can smash your thumb. If you use a knife, you can cut yourself. If you're cooking on a stovetop, you, you can leave the, the burner going and burn your house down. You know, I mean, it, a bad markdown formatted post isn't going to burn your house down, thankfully. But, it, you know, there's there's an implicit, hey, I know what you know what you're doing. Don't write anything stupid looking. If it looks all right, it's probably going to come out all right. Right. Whereas the the folks that want to build, change it so it'll be parse better, they want to like sort of eliminate the possibility of error. Yeah. It's like they, 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 they want they want to write Swift instead of use C. Yeah, well, and then the other thing, the bigger, more popular thing that people want to do, and they have done with their variants, and I think it's fine. I just don't think that they should – no, I don't want anybody to call it just plain markdown, is they want to add features. Oh, my God, do people want to add features. And everybody – all it's just so it, – it's just like – you know, like an XKCD, whatever the name of that comic is, come to life. It's like we need one I don't more standard. Everybody, yeah, every, we need one more standard. Everybody thinks that they can come up with the one. You know, there's 14 popular variants of Markdown, and it's like we can come up with the one universal one, and then it'll solve the problem. And then what you end up with is with the 15th popular version of Markdown. There's no possible way to make one. I know this. I know this for a fact. Just by looking, people aren't really looking at the use cases, you know, like GitHub has a very popular flavor of Markdown. They even call it GitHub flavored Markdown. And it's not, 
it is not appropriate for me to use to write blog posts because it, it doesn't allow things that I want to be able to do in a blog post. But it's perfectly sensible and wise for GitHub not to allow people to do them in posts to GitHub. <laughs> yep. Just to step back, though, this this bigger philosophical point, because I've been thinking about it in the context of this podcast that we that we are launching. Right. And we're, and been developing the software behind it. That's going to serve it. We're going to we're going to experiment with a new business model or we are experimenting defensively when you listen to this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but like to me, it feels it feels really vital and valuable to be doing something like this. And and I it really Chris, to me like so last week when I wrote my article about compact and their coronavirus i i had a sort of you know there's action and there's talk and i worry that you know sort of generally speaking we've we've gotten too much to the talk side and not enough on the action side whether it be sort of like hmm. industrial policy or approaches or whatever and just really re like reset in my mind how important it is to to keep doing action and like i feel like this podcast stuff who knows if it's going to work out but i feel it's it's been so good for me because the whole like starting strategy and setting up the business that was six seven years ago right yep. and and now i've just been writing and i've been doing talking and it's it, i felt so refreshed getting back into doing something again i think it's going to be good for my writing sort of in the long run because you need to have you need to have both that's an interesting observation. And it's, I feel exactly the same way about this podcast where I feel like, and, and my wife is like happy for me. She's like, well, why did it take you so long? You know, <laughs> my wife wants me to come up with new ideas, <laughs> new ways to make the business grow and, you know, do new things that, that, you know, are, are successful. And it has been, it's been too long. I, I realized that I'm like looking at it and I'm like, I, I kind of Kubrick myself there where, I went way too many years between like just trying something. And again, I didn't make much money at all from Markdown. In the early, early, early years, I actually had like a tip jar type thing up. Like, hey, if you like Markdown, send me some money on PayPal. And I, I made some money there, like more money than you might think. Like maybe like low thousands of dollars, like $2,000 or something like that, which was a nice little thing. But it, but Markdown's a good example too, where I don't regret it at all, you know, and I'm delighted to see how popular it is. And I don't really make a nickel from it anymore at the moment. Uh, I don't want to, but I still feel like I accomplished something, you know, and it's, it right. is it, true. It, it, it paid off for someone like, like me, like going to Daring Fireball and taking seriously what you had to say, most first and foremost, because you were making good arguments, but also like the, it, I felt like just felt like there was something to the arguments that was augmented by the fact that you had made this really valuable tool, <laughs> right? Yeah. And maybe that's the, the, that, that's not a fair way to think about things, but I I just remember that it, I was always so impressed that you had made Markdown as I was like reading your posts and. Again, I reflected, oh, I was so I'm so proud of the structure business model as a righteous checkery, mm -hmm. even if I'm not writing about the business model, because just, just to me, it, like it's more than just talk, if, yeah. if that makes sense. And I don't know, the, the last week writing that article and then us working on this podcast, it's really crystallizes it in my head. And, and yeah, I feel the same way that you do. Yeah, that was a great column. That was one of my and again, it's, you know, I don't want to turn this podcast into a mutual ad admiration society here but it was one of my favorite uh strategic columns in a while especially because i could not see where you were going like you <laughs> you opened with the premise that you were going to compare compact who's been out of business since like 2010 when hp subsumed them and turned them into like a discount brand which was so ignominious by the way i mean well, no, it was worse than that it was like in 2002 it was 2010 where they disappeared completely right. so people don't realize like they they i mean they really only had a 20-year run which is unfortunate given like 
it was a truly meaningful company. Like Compaq was way more important than Dell or like HP or whatever right. to the actual personal computer revolution. Right. Yeah. Dell was the one that, you know, literally Michael Dell was putting PCs together in his dorm room. I mean, Dell's the one that really revolutionized things, not at a technical level, but just at like the business model level. Yeah. And the degree to which he saw this as a pure commodity business, you know, like everybody's starting to think about this as a commodity. And Michael Dell was like, Oh no, you have no idea. This is just like selling uh, pork bellies, you know, uh, this that's, is, and that's where Compact that's where Compact got in trouble because they yeah. were still selling through a regular channel. Right. And Compact machines, people forget, were super over engineered. Like yeah. the, the early Compact, <laughs> they were people bought them because they were by far the best computers. Right. It was back in a day when having a really good, well engineered machine made a huge difference. I was never into IBM PCs, but I totally like in the '90s totally respected Compacts. They were like tanks. It, it, it's like what happened to the Compact brand would be like if somehow. At like, you know, like in the early 70s, you know, like just after the 60s when they had a great decade, somehow Ford ended up buying Cadillac from GM and just turned it into a discount brand. <laughs> I know. That's exactly what it's like. And that's what made it so bad. I, I don't think I quite mentioned that, but that HP made it a discount brand right. of all things <laughs> right. instead of being their premium brand. Just crushing. It's exact to me. It's exactly like if Ford had bought Cadillac, and, and all of a sudden they were no, just it's like a, it's a great analogy. It's a perfect just, analogy. Just exactly aluminum. Right. They're just aluminum cans with four wheels <laughs> and a low powered engine. And it's like, wait, it's a Cadillac. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. But yeah, but yeah, I mean that's that's what happened to Compact. They hauled themselves out. They they out, started outsourcing more and more. They started to expand new businesses, not by building the wherewithal to run the businesses, but by partnering with other folks. And it ended up, they were nothing more, they were nothing more than a badge like yeah. that. that They HP finished the job, but compacts leadership in the nineties is drove them into the ditch. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was sort of the point I was making. Like it, it, I, it just, it's sad. Like fe- feeling like we as a country are just not, you see the actions we talked about in, in the last podcast, like the quarantines and stuff like that. And you yeah. can dither about whether it's good or bad, but the level of like social organization and effort to make that happen at scale. And you look at the U S like, can we, like, can we even like get, get people to stay inside for 24 hours? Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. And, and it, it is a crisis that absolutely positively demands not just like one or two actions, but actions at every single level of society. That's right. In, 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 oh, so much to talk now. Th- there is clear things to t- talk about at the top, no question. But you're right. We, we, you talk about the China example, like communities organizing themselves. Like, where's are we getting that in in, in the U.S.? I mean, it, it's you're right. It's action up and down the stack is needed. And uh, I mean, hopefully, you know, historically, America started slow and then come on strong. And I, I, I sure, I sure hope it happens. 